Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I arrived today to our podcast recording studio, as I so often do, inspired by a David Brooks column. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing more. Well, actually, he did have kind of an interesting column today. That may be the most positive thing I've ever heard you say. I know. uh, About talking to zealots, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you think about it, we're in the midst of this intense debate in this country about how you talk to people that you disagree with. Mm -hmm. This is a question that, you know, divides people on campus. And even in the podcast studio. Even in the podcast studio. Now, I happen to really, you know, I believe deeply in engaging people that that I disagree with. You believe that much more strongly than I do. I know you. I know it's true. Um, but I also recognize that it's not something that you're just. You kind of have to learn how to do it, and that's really, in a lot of ways, that is the subject of today's episode. That's a nice framing. So uh, I'll offer a kind of alternative framework, which is what happens when you don't learn how to do it, uh, and those of us who work in the higher education sphere have been tracking uh, campus controversies and unpopular ideas and the reactions to these. And so we've seen a number of high-profile incidents uh, on campus over the last year or two. So Charles Murray, he of dubious racial beliefs about uh, intellectual ability of people, uh, was disinvited from Middlebury after uh, campus unrest. We've seen uh, you know, high-profile invites or disinvites and security costs at Berkeley. Um, and so there are folks on both sides, uh, you know, liberals and conservatives, who are wringing their hands and wondering what on earth is going on uh, with regard to free speech and the, the teaching and engagement uh, with controversial issues. And so we're going to talk to uh, a great historian of education, John Zimmerman, today. Uh, and John has written a book not about higher education, but about K-12. And, uh, and it'll be really interesting to think about how these issues apply both at that level and in higher education, and then, of course, in the broader world beyond. What's so interesting about John Zimmerman's book, The Case for Contention, is that he really makes the case that being able to talk to people you don't agree with is something that you have to learn how to do, right? It, it's not something that necessarily comes naturally. So why don't we get him into the Have You Heard studio and let him explain that. The skills that we're talking about here, skills of dialogue, of deliberation, of reason, of tolerance, they're not natural. In fact, I think that there's some evidence coming out of psychology to suggest that they're rather profoundly unnatural. Um, Nobody comes out of the womb saying, you know, well, I'm going to listen to you and, you know, tolerate what you say and not kill you even though I disagree, you know, well. Um, uh, uh, In fact, they come out saying, me, 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 which is what really a crying baby says. Or tweeting. Um, And and what we need to do as, as parents, as educators, as citizens, is teach them a certain set of skills about the way that politics and democracy is supposed to work. These are not natural skills. And um, uh, it is clear from our current moment 
that we have a deficit of them. We're living in an incredibly polarized moment, a moment of mutual vilification, um, uh, a moment where shouting is replacing talking and name-calling is replacing discussion. And we will not be able to budge from that moment. We will not be able to move the needle, as it were, unless our educational institutions step into this challenge. And I would say, up until now, they haven't. And that means K-12 and university. There are exceptions to that claim, obviously, but I do think there is a crisis in American politics, um, and I don't think our educational institutions have stepped up to it. So one question that I have, John, is about the common school movement. So we're talking about the first half of the 19th century um, and the degree to which schools were originally set up to foster discussion about controversial issues. Um, This is one of the things that I sometimes hear people say. Um, They will say, you know, Horace Mann's vision was of free public schools that would bring all different kinds of people together and they would hash out their issues. Um, That isn't my understanding of it, uh, but I was hoping that you might be able to go into a bit more depth and detail in terms of talking about the degree to which the founders of American public schools were thinking about the teaching of controversial issues as something that they wanted to happen or not uh, in schools. It's really important to go backwards in time to the creation of our common school systems, you know, our first state school systems, which is this reform in the antebellum era that we associate with figures like Henry Barnard and Horace Mann. There's a lot of myth-making around what those guys did. Um, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, they, they um, uh, uh, created these institutions where we could discuss controversy in the classroom. Actually, it's precisely the opposite. Horace Mann himself wrote several uh, um, uh, articles and speeches insisting that schools should never address a controversial issue. And the reason is, is that he's trying to build a system and more specifically trying to get taxpayers to pay for the system. And his fear is that if they see what he called a controverted opinion, we would call it controversial, especially one they did not share, they wouldn't pay for his reform. Um, So he was quite explicit on this subject. To be clear, and it's ironic, schools themselves were born in controversy. That is, the creation and the funding of schools was always controversial. But they were not formed to discuss controversy inside their walls. Quite the contrary. The people that created them wanted to insulate them from controversy so that taxpayers would support them. And to this day, I would argue, this is still a dynamic and a dilemma, especially for people like Zimmerman, because Zimmerman wants to persuade others that dialogue in the classroom and critical discussion of contemporary issues lies at the heart of the democratic dream that we needed to prepare people for democratic life. What, though, Jack, what happens if it turns out that the demos i.e. the people, don't actually want that. (laughs) This, frankly, is a dilemma I have never resolved. 
it has hounded me throughout my career as a historian, as an, as an educator. And I suppose all I can do is try to persuade more people, more members of the demos, that we need this for democracy. Just for a minute there, I was a little bit puzzled about who Zimmerman was. And I realized that you were referring to yourself in the third person. And I hope that Jack, as someone who really admires you, starts to refer to himself in the third person. If I do, it'll actually be modeled on Ricky Henderson's use of the practice rather than on John's. But don't worry, I'm, I'm working on it. So John, I, I thought your book was just terrific. And you use the metaphor of an accordion to describe this kind of push and pull between moments where teachers have relatively more freedom to engage in controversial issues, and then other times when there's sort of a, you know, a clamp down. And I wondered if you could just describe, take us through that, what it looks like. The story that I tell in our book is that there has been the teaching of controversial issues in schools, and it has ebbed and flowed. You know, we tell a kind of accordion story, a kind of, to mix metaphors, a staccato story where you have a little bit more leeway in discussion and then it gets constricted again. So during the so-called progressive era, you do see more discussion in classrooms spurred often by the current events lesson, which was born during the progressive era. And the current events lesson, of course, is cut out a clipping from a newspaper, bring it in and discuss it with the class. And um, it was fun actually researching the history of this lesson because it was actually created by the newspaper industry um, to to try to um, uh, promote uh, young readership, mm. which is kind of fascinating. And we're talking about an era, of course, where you know even mid-sized American cities had five or six daily newspapers. But but anyway, this is the heyday of the American newspaper, and um, the current events lesson absolutely does spawn more discussion in, in schools. But here's where the accordion metaphor kicks in. As soon as the United States enters the, the First World War, which, of course, we do late. It's not until 1917, right? And that war began in 1914. As soon as that, as, as that happens, discussion gets severely limited, and many places just choked off, um, this is the you know the the, the era of the uh, all kinds of sedition acts and laws against criticizing the government and of course um, uh, that means that teachers are newly constrained indeed constrained by the law. So I'm wondering if you can talk through a case from a period that Americans often think of as being one of political consensus. So I'm thinking of the New Deal period. Right where so 1936, for instance, Franklin Roosevelt gets 523 electoral votes, uh, and Alf Landon gets eight. So this seems to be a very different time politically than 2017. And I'm wondering if you can talk us through a case from that period, if it is in fact the case that teaching controversial issues is always a controversial practice, regardless of political context. I'm wondering if you can come up with uh, something from the Zimmerman archives uh, that illustrates this from this period that, you know, again, people often think of as one marked by strong political consensus. When you tell these stories and you're trying to document these rhythms, there's always a danger of romanticizing. So, you know, you, 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 you're tempted to say, well, during the Great Depression, it was the era of the popular front, it was the era of all this sort of kind of, you know, lefty ferment, so obviously our schools were these kind of, you know, bastions of free thought and discussion, au contraire. 
there were people fired throughout the Great Depression, um, uh, including this, 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 this guy that I became fascinated with, this teacher in Belvedere, Illinois, whose name was Hugh Bone. And Hugh Bone, he did it the way, like, classic progressive educators are supposed to do it. So it was 1932, there's a presidential election on, and Hugh Bone says, okay, this side of the room is going to be Hoover, that side of the room is going to be FDR, you're going to debate each other. He takes the kids into town offices, that is, municipal offices, and have them report on what they do. Okay, what does the Board of Health do? You know, what, what, is the, what does the water department do? And again, this is all kind of straight out of John Dewey and kind of classic progressive text. Um, education is something that is not just critical, but community-based. It's not just centered in the classroom. It's centered in the community and society. Well, he's fired. There's an all-student walkout. An all-student walkout, which, of course, yields nothing, and Hugh Bone, like every fired teacher I've been able to find, ends up in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit. So we've seen that there is uh, an expansion and contraction uh, of teachers' freedoms to teach controversial issues. An in accordion. The an accordion, if you will. Uh, that is influenced strongly by political events, but... I'm wondering if you can bring us up to the present and also address some of the other issues that you talk about in your book. Um, you know, the legal context for uh, shaping the teaching of controversial issues, um, the policy context, specifically um, the policies that shape what teachers teach in classrooms and how they teach, um, and also about the capacity that is in place preparing teachers to teach controversial issues or not. Um, so bring us quickly up to the 1980s and then you know, maybe talk through some of those issues for us. I mean, up to the present, okay, you know, during the 60s and 70s, more expansion, definitely, you know, this is the era of Tinker v. Des Moines and the, and the armbands, definitely more, more, more discussion, although as we point out in the book, still you shouldn't exaggerate it. There are plenty of places where teachers are fired for doing it. Um, when we went and started tape record classrooms, which we could because of, you know, cassette technology, we found out that there was actually very little so-called normative discussion in schools. But then in the 80s, more constriction, I would say, has continued since then, but for some different set of reasons. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the entire accountability revolution, as it were, which, remember, begins with, with, with Nation at Risk in the 80s and, you know, um, begins in the States, of course. Uh, no Child Left Behind itself is not till 2002, but it's really the capstone of a lot of kind of accountability energy that, you know, Jack and others have, have written about. Um, there's no question that that has served a constraining role, in part because the high-stakes tests, um, uh, well, not just do they, it's not just that they encourage teaching to the test, often they encourage teaching to a single right answer, which questions like, should we invade Iraq, often don't have. Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's one reason. Speaking of should we invade Iraq, another constraining factor has been that the courts have actually constrained what teachers have the right to do. Um, again, these things play out differently in different parts of the country. There's always enormous variation. But um, you've probably read that in 2007 there was a, a federal um, uh, uh, there was a there was a federal circuit court decision on this subject involving a teacher in Indiana named Deborah Mayer. And um, in 2003, 
during the build-up to the to the Iraq War. Um, uh, uh, Deborah Mayer was teaching fifth graders a current events lesson, yes, from the District Approved magazine, Time for Kids. And you may recall that during the build-up to that war, when it was clear that we were probably going to invade, there was a big protest in Washington, D.C. on the Mall. The class was reading an article about that protest, which included a picture, a photograph of it, and a caption about it. And a kid in the class said, Ms. Mayer, have you ever attended an anti-war rally? And she said in response, yes, as a matter of fact, I drove by one in Bloomington, this is Indiana, the other day, and I honked my horn in support. And the second thing she said was, um, uh, and as a rule, I think that people should try to settle their differences with, um, uh, you know, discussion and dialogue, not with violence, which is why, you know, I'm the the faculty advisor to the peer mediation project in our school. Fired or not rehired. Um, and the courts upheld that. So there's absolutely been, I think, in the legal realm, uh, a constraint on what teachers are allowed um, to do. Um, so that's a factor, too. And the other thing we've learned that's really important is that when you interview teachers about their pre-service and their professional preparation, that um, addressing controversial issues, how to do it, what the best practices are, is often not a part of their preparation at all. Many people say that they weren't even told that they would ever have to do that, let alone how. And there's a huge disconnect here because many school districts, we go into this in our book, actually have policies about the teaching of controversial issues where they say, we support the teaching of controversial issues. Um, of course, we don't want people indoctrinating our students, so the teacher has to take care, of course, which is true, a whole other discussion point, not to foist her or his own opinions on the students, but, you know, controversial issues are part of a democracy. We have to be prepared to do them. All the stuff I was saying earlier. But then you look at the way we prepare teachers, and by and large, we do not prepare them to lead those discussions. So why exactly should we expect them to do so. It seems to me that one of the issues underlying some of the roadblocks that you've identified is what Dan Lordy calls the apprenticeship of observation, right? So uh, those of us who end up graduating from high school spend 13 years in the K-12 system observing teachers teach, and that this really has a strong influence on the way that future teachers view the profession, and specifically what they think teaching entails. And so if students today move through the system and do not observe teachers teaching controversial issues, that the teachers of tomorrow will simply not have that on their radars as something that teachers do, that that won't be a part of their map of the profession, uh, and that they will be less likely to engage in the practice or to even think about it as something that they might engage in. My concern was more about that demos that I was talking about earlier and whether the voting public actually wants this and what might get them to want it. But I think you're making a really good point, too, which attaches to this question of professional preparation. I think it's precisely because, as you're pointing out, and as Lordy points out, teachers have been in classrooms their whole lives and haven't seen these kinds of behaviors exemplified, that we who prepare teachers have to take special efforts to uh, explain and demonstrate this sort of activity if we want it to happen. It's precisely because of what you're saying that there has to be a very deliberate 
to, to use the academy's intervention because people haven't borne witness to this. You, you know, it seems listening to you talk through that, John, it seems also that, you know, a part of the demos problem is that so many of our expectations for what schools should do are shaped by our own experiences. So, you know, we've all been through school and we know what a quote unquote real school is and we know what the sort of the, the, the guardrails are for topics that schools don't tend to veer off into. And so it seems like, you know, much of the parental conservatism, you know, small C conservatism with regard to the teaching of controversial issues may also be a product of the fact that uh, parents don't view that as a part of the mission of a school because it wasn't what their schools did. And to me, that raises a sort of even bigger question because whereas we can intervene with teachers via their training and disrupt the apprenticeship of observation, it seems like a much more difficult task to disrupt the kinds of expectations that the public has much harder. Around. I think that's a great. It's a great analogy. I wish I had thought of it myself. <laughs> I think that's. I think that's exactly right. You know, um, this is why we and, had you on, John, so that you could just say flattering yeah. things to me. Don't worry, I'll, I'll <laughs> no, get no, you no, back. No, no, I hadn't connected them in precisely that way. I think that that's brilliant, and 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 you know, I think you're right. I think it's an even heavier lift, um, and and you know, I I what what I've been doing. In the past year, I mean, is going around giving talks, trying to persuade people that we need this, you know. Um, and and I'll tell you, in my you know, in my own view, Trump has been terrible for America, but man, he has kept me busy mm. um, because <laughs> these issues are kind of at the frontal lobe, I think, right now, you know. And and look, I think that like anything in democracy. Um, this won't work without acts of persuasion, right? And obviously persuasion takes all kinds of different forms and all kinds of steps, including baby steps. But just to give you one very minor baby step, one of the things I've been doing at the University of Pennsylvania where I now work is I've been organizing dialogues between college students from around the Delaware Valley. After Trump was elected, I was really, really upset by, frankly, the low quality of discussion at Penn, um, by the frame of trauma that many people use to describe this, which I think is kind of a rhetorical cul-de-sac, something that inhibits discussion. Um, uh, and I decided that the only way we could really have discussion was by bringing in people from other places, especially places with a different political profile than Penn. So I got in touch with people at Cairn University, formerly Philadelphia Bible College, and we organized a series of discussions between Penn students and Cairn students. Now we've expanded it. So we had one last week, and we had kids from St. Joe's, Villanova, Temple, Drexel, um, uh, representing a wider array of backgrounds, experiences, and, and political orientations that Penn students uh, typically demonstrate. And one of the things that the students said in their, 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 their post-dialogue evaluations is they were so afraid to talk to somebody of a different perspective, and it turned out that it wasn't that hard. So, John, when you got those students together, what was it, do you think, that they were so afraid of? The, the dominant expression in the, in the, in the post-hoc evals was relief. Relief because there was so much what in Yiddish we would call surus, which just means like sound and fury, mm -hmm 
surrounding this subject, people feel so, um, I think, a mixture of angry and scared. Um, they, they understand that the political waters have in many ways been poisoned and discussion has been difficult, and therefore they exempt themselves from it. Um, uh, and you have to create venues where you, yes, persuade them through practice that you can do this. You know, it, it's not rocket science. It really isn't. You know, you can get people around tables from different positions, and they can learn how to speak in civil and mutually respectful ways. But they've got to do it, and you've got to start somewhere. And I think that's our challenge right now. Um, and look, if, if I had a good answer to this, if I had a good remedy, uh, you know, I just wouldn't be some professor at some university. I mean, you know, I, I, all of us are grappling with this, I think, in our own ways, trying to make sense of it um, and trying to do little things that hopefully, hopefully can not just promote dialogue, but more to Jack's point, make a case for it which is a different thing, right? Although they are related, I don't really think you can make an effective case unless you demonstrate it, you know, unless you sh actually show people that indeed it can't be done. But let's also be clear, it's incredibly hard to do that when you've elected a president who flouts so many of those norms on a daily basis. And let me be clear about this, because I see no reason to pull any punches. I do loathe the person we elected, but not because of his political views. To be honest, I'm not really sure what those views are. Um, uh, it's not because of his political positions or views. It's because of the way in his behavior that he's flouted what I see as some absolutely essential practices of democracy. And what I tell my students is you can like Trump and you can vote for him and you can support him and his politics. That is totally cool. Um, I, I, I endorse that and value that and support that. But you can't act like him. That was John Zimmerman. He's a professor of the history of education at UPenn and the author of a new book called The Case for Contention, Teaching Controversial Issues in American Schools. And Jack and I will be right back with a few final thoughts. So Jack, our regular listeners are probably aware that our previous episode was really a Jennifer Berkshire special. And I'm continuing the tradition of, of referring to ourselves in the third person that our last guest started. I picked the topic. I went off and did the interview. And so I thought it's really only fair if you got to be in the driver's seat for this episode. So how did it feel? Was it as satisfying as it you would hope? It was exhausting. I don't ever want to do that again. You look exhausted. <laughs> so I just have to tell you that at the same time that we were talking to John Zimmerman, a uh, uh, controversy, related controversy, was playing out in my city of Gloucester, Massachusetts. It wasn't exactly a teacher tackling a controversial issue in the classroom. It was school-related. I don't want to go into too much detail for fear of, you know, further fanning the flames. Oh, I thought maybe you were worried that I would fire you. <laughs> that too. That too. Let's just describe it as a Halloween party trick gone awry. But the, the aftermath hit on 
literally every point that Zimmerman described, that you saw this, you know, at a time of of great polarization, you saw, you know, it, it, tur- it blew up into a national news story, the principals getting death threats, and then the response of everyone in the school community, from the people who work at the school, to the parents, to the city officials, is to say, School is not a place for politics. Let's not talk about this. Let's not talk about this. And then you can imagine that the kids who go to the school, who are who sense that there's you know something something's going on, something's not right, they then associate political debate with something really unpleasant to be avoided. That's something that they should be protected from as well as how the adults in the community are presenting it. And so rather than thinking of this as an opportunity to educate and a part of their mission, um, one of the things that John helpfully talks through there is that that's not a character flaw of the adults in the building, that that actually is very much related to the historical practices of teachers as well as to teacher training and a number of other issues, um, you know, legal constraints, policy constraints. My favorite part of that interview was hearing John talk about the experiment that he's conducting right now, bringing students together who have different points of view and different backgrounds and getting them to talk about issues that they might, you know, might be scared of, of talking about face to face. I'd really like to sit in on that uh, classroom. I feel like, you know, I'm one of these people who could probably use some Zimmerman training, uh, you know, in terms of how we talk to the people who we disagree with. I tend not to shout at them. I just tend to use my condescending voice, uh, which you've never heard, of course, and our, our listeners have never heard, but uh, but it, it exists. Well, I actually had another idea. You and I do a, a bi-weekly podcast, and, and while we don't shy away from differences of opinion, some have pointed out that our our guests do tend to fall into the category of people that we agree with. I think the comment was that we needed to play more away games. So I'd like to throw out to our vast listening audience the challenge of perhaps suggesting someone who we might have on as a guest with whom we have a difference of opinion. And with whom we might have a civil conversation. I think that's a great idea. You were about to say on that note, go ahead. On that note. I'm Jack Schneider. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. This is Have You Heard. And don't forget that if you're enjoying what you're listening to, please go on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and give us a rating, probably a five-star rating. Uh, That'll only make it easier for others to find the show. 